Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, where we bring you weekly conversations with purpose-driven leaders. Our focus is to share meaningful conversations with purpose-driven people having a big social impact in our community. Our mission is to enable you to listen, connect, and grow. You can learn more at humansofpurpose.com.au. Welcome back to the podcast. Terrific to have you with us. Well, today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're actually going to simulcast an episode across two podcast channels. I'm collaborating today with my friend Rachel Mason Nunn, who you might know as the host of the Goodwill Hunters podcast, the podcast that explores how we can radically transform international development by creating greater collaboration between the private sector and the not-for-profit sector. And the tagline there is purpose, profit, and progress. So we've got a stack of overlap, which is why we decided to connect and do this together. Rachel was initially a fan of the Humans of Purpose uh, podcast, which is part of the reason she started her podcast. And I think she's done a terrific job at bringing together a lovely cascade of really inspiring individuals to tell the story that she's telling. And um, so we do have a lot of guests in common as well coming up, and obviously we've got our own overlap, but I thought it'd just be interesting to chat to another podcaster about how they're looking at this space and how they're telling the stories of many of our great change makers. And I really enjoyed talking to Rachel. I think there's some great learnings for me from the way that she approaches her interviews with people and um, how she goes about her podcasting technique. So stick around um, and enjoy the episode. Awesome to have you here, Rach. Thanks for coming now. Thank you so much for having me. I feel very lucky that um, you know, you've know flown in just to appear on Humans of Purpose. <laughs> and, uh, when you told me that you're also coming to the live podcast last night, I was, I was double chuffed. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic to be here. It's, it's the whole reason I'm in Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> let's just make everyone believe that for yep. a little bit longer. Yeah, let's go with that. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, look, I'm, I'm pumped to have you on. I think um, the idea came to me a while ago because people kept saying to me, do you know Rachel Mason Nunn? She's got this great podcast, Goodwill Hunters. And I said, oh, well, I hope you've also heard of my podcast. No, no I, I knew, obviously, <laughs> I was thinking maybe they would have heard of Humans of Purpose, but, but your podcast has popped up a lot recently and it, it's very uh, awesome to see the growth and mm. great guests you've had on. Oh, that's that's so nice to hear. And yeah, it's it's been good. We're coming up to um, the 10-month mark now, but, but funnily enough, before I started my podcast, I only listened to about three three other podcasts. I was not an avid podcast listener. Um, one of those was Wardrobe Crisis by Claire Press. Um, who went on your podcast. Who went, who later was on my <laughs> podcast, which was really cool. And the other one was actually Humans of Purpose. I, I loved this show and I loved the the very conversational um, style that you had with your guests and just kind of getting to hear people's stories every week. Um, so it was a huge inspiration to me. So it's quite surreal to now be on the show. <laughs> well, it's very kind of you to, to say that. I'm curious, what made you think I want to make a podcast? Yeah. So I was at a really interesting juncture um, in March of 2017. I I had left my career in the not-for-profit sector and I wasn't quite sure when or if I would go back. Um, and I was doing my master's full-time And I think you get to this point early on in your career where you have a fantastic network of people. Mm. Like I'd met so many people over the years, but you kind of just rely on running into them at events. Yep. Or sending them an email every every couple of months with a, a little life update. And I thought I want to have a meaningful way to 
to continue to engage with people. Um, and I've always loved asking people questions. I'm a very verbal learner, mm. um, more so than any other learning style I learned through conversation. And I thought, what a great opportunity this is to connect with the people that I already know and ask them questions every week. And, and I did, and it was, wasn't until quite late on in our first season that I actually reached out to someone I didn't know. Mm. Um, everyone were, were people that I'd had the privilege of working with. So, so I guess in short, it was very selfish. I just wanted to catch up with the people that I liked. In the well, it's system. a great way to catch up. I, mean, I yeah. think that's very like in contrast in a bit in the way that I started out because um, I was in the public service and I didn't have any networks and no good people outside the public service. Mm. And um, I, I knew very few people who I think would have made good guests on the show. So for me, I started out going very cold to people and started to get try to get familiar or comfortable with the idea of reaching out to strangers and not yeah. strangers, just friends you haven't met yet, but, you know, people you haven't met um, and having to get comfortable with that skill. How, how did you, like, what did you, what did you reach out to them with? What was the hook? I found um, just being an authentically interested person uh, for some people is enough. Mm. For other people, they need a clear alignment of purpose or um, something that you're doing that's well in sync with what they're doing. So um, I just focused on repeatedly being very like, you know, hey, um, it's Mike. Um, I know we haven't met, but I've started out doing this podcast. Um, I see you're doing amazing things in this space. And the, the truth is, is really that people love talking about themselves and what they're doing. Yeah. And so to give people a chance to reach new people through a platform, I think essentially this podcast is we give people a platform, a different way of telling the story. Mm. So for me, that was always like um, – helps me get out of that randomness. Yeah. Make me feel like I was doing something useful to them. And I think that's testament to you you never know if you don't ask. Like I think so often yeah. the the opportunities that we really want to have a, a the thing between us and getting that is just asking but we're not confident enough to ask. Yeah. And absolutely agree with that. Yeah, it's it's just it's it is about realizing that more often than not, people say yes. Like people want to help. People are fundamentally people, good. Yeah. <laughs> I think you have to have the perspective that people want to say yes to you. Mm. And if you start out working from that perspective rather than they're going to find a reason to say no, you're going to be a lot more successful and positive. And you know, people want to be around you more. Um, so I started to just work on that kind of getting a good message right and it's different for different people and different industries but then I think probably as you know you get to a point where you've done enough good guests or high profile guests that the social norms start to take effect and people say oh um he's had this person on this is probably not that bad yeah so true (laughs) yeah yeah, oh, that's so true. I, I was reflecting on that recently, actually, as we start planning for season three and thinking the lineup's just been so good. The possibilities are endless. Like, at what point can I ask Michelle Obama to be on the show? You could ask her now <laughs> if you wanted. Like, you, you, you go. You know, Do you, you reckon? Yeah, you could totally just be like, hey, Michelle. Um, Read your book, Rachel. loved it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know you're probably busy, but yeah, you cool. Just, like, I only need. 40 minutes. How much? It was 40 minutes? Half 40 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect, perfect. Yeah. Oh, it sounds really compelling. Um, I think you mentioned something interesting there, though. You said that you were in the public sector and didn't have all the same connections. So what what was that like, transitioning from the public sector to more work in the not-for-profit sector? Great question. So public sector 
was excellent. I mean, for me, it was always about the journey to where can I make the most impact as a person. And I think when I came into the system, um, I'm not sure if you know this, I, I studied law, commerce and law, and then I um, went into the courts as a judge's associate for a year. And I wanted to figure out whether, you know, legal policy was an area that could drive social change. Um, I soon realized that I couldn't be a lawyer because it just wasn't my, I didn't have enough attention to detail, to be honest. Uh, so quickly bailed out of that. You can laugh, it's okay. Uh, quick, quickly bailed out of that and then um, looked at what are the other areas that are a bit more kind of systems focused. So government and policy, policy and strategy was really key area. Um, Department of Health and Human Services and then public sector efficiency were sort of the areas I worked in. And um, they were areas where obviously implementing, you know, um, good policy can change a lot of lives. So that felt great, but it was too far from the action. So you couldn't see that what you were doing had any immediate impact anywhere. Um, it's like the paradigm of, is it better to work on the machine or in the machine? Mm. Um, so for me, um, I felt I had to go out into community to do better work. And that was my drive to get to not-for-profit sector was if I can be a, um, a strategy and impact person in um you know, in a not-for-profit as I do and, you know, then working purposeful to try and help not-for-profits and business to be more community-focused, that would be a good sort of balance. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because I guess you're still not at the front line of impact. Mm. Like there's but, – but in the same way, you're far more connected than you are when you're purely policy-focused and you're extremely yeah. disconnected from, yeah. from the people at the front line. So yeah. it's, it's a balancing act. It's a balancing act and, you know, for yourself being at, being at EY and sort of doing really important work in that space but also with pro bono clients, I mean, how do you feel about – do you feel like you're close enough to the furnace? Mm, no. No, I don't. Um, but I'm confident now in the impact that I have in my work. Yep. Um, like I feel an enormous amount of, of purpose and and worth around my work. However, I think that you never want to become desensitized from what it is like at that front line of impact and um Often, I mean, my work is very international focused, so it's not feasible to think that every week I'll be I'll be out there in the communities in you know distant faraway places that 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 we're doing work with. But at the same time, actually taking tangible steps to involve yourself in stakeholder engagement and mm-hmm. and you know try and stay connected to the local news in that area and. Yeah, it, but I it see you hard. as somebody who actually is having quite a strong systems impact because you know you're at a, um, a big consulting group, but the work that you're doing um, with important clients, you mentioned DFAT and you know other mm. important clients you've got who are shaping that kind of aid or you know yeah. development infrastructure, and then you're down in Melbourne doing some really important work as well with the with the Indian community. Which are, Feel free to talk about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that is cool. Uh, it's not the reason I'm in Melbourne, though. Let's remember. Um, <laughs> of course not. My I'm here bad. for this. <laughs> um, yes, so I'm doing the Australia India Youth Dialogue this week. Um, so back when I did my undergraduate degree, I studied at the Tata Institute of Social Sciences in Mumbai. Um, and it really cemented a love of all things India for me. Um, and I felt that. You know, India is such an important partner to Australia, but we've had a very complex relationship with India for um, for quite a long time. And I think my first one of my first forays into the aid sector was hearing that um, India had asked Australia to stop giving them aid um, about five or six years ago. I remember hearing this and 
you know, as I was starting my career in this sector and thinking, oh, why on earth would a country ask us to stop giving them eight? Mm. Um, and it kind of made me delve a bit deeper. And, and ever since then, I've had a real appreciation um, for the Australia-India relationships. So um, the AIYD, which I'm attending this week, is the leading track two diplomacy between Australia and India. So I don't know if you're familiar with track two diplomacy. No. Go ahead. No, yeah, well, neither was I up until a few <laughs> weeks ago when I heard this term. Um, but track one diplomacy is diplomacy between uh, politicians mm-hmm. um, and, you know, that very high level, um, your APEC and um, all of that ASEAN sort of work. Um, track two diplomacy is diplomacy between civil society. So it's where you're bringing together other delegates and civil society leaders that, that aren't necessarily in politics. Um, and a, a lot of people believe track two diplomacy is far more powerful mm. than track one diplomacy because it's with the real change makers, yeah. the, the people who are, who are on the ground doing work every day. And so this is the leading track two diplomacy between Australia and India and, um, where, yeah, we've got a whole range of topics and we're meeting with Peter Varghese um, and Maurice Payne and just a number of really interesting people. So I'm very excited. Do you maybe see, and this is foreshadowing a question later in the podcast, but is there a future in diplomacy maybe? Cool. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I think so. Politics has always been my long-term goal. Um, my job straight out of high school was working for our then New South Wales treasurer, Mike Baird, before he became Premier. Um, so I got to work in his office for six months. And He, always, he, he seems like a great guy. Is he a great guy? I, he is a great awesome. guy. That's, yeah. so, that's so comforting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he is a really a great guy and he was a fantastic mentor for me. Um, but, yeah, look, I... In short, after six months there, I realised that politics wasn't for me at that point, Um, but it's always been a long-term goal of mine to get back into it. So what about you? Politics? No? (laughs) No. um, I don't know. That's a a really good question. It's certainly not now or maybe ever. Um, I just think it's a tough contact sport that um, I don't Mm. know if I could do it. Um, Mm. I don't know whether I've got the... This, the, the sales ability, you've got to sell yourself so well in politics. And I think that's probably one of my weaknesses or has historically been a weakness. So maybe not. And um, then there's a party room and, you know, why, why are things changing and the caucusing and, you know, trying to un- like, I think I'm the kind of person who likes to understand why things are changing and, you know, be kind of at the heart of things and really get the why. But with politics, sometimes I feel like it's just about towing the party line very much. Yeah. Um, and even yeah. into choppy waters, you've just got to be always, seems like, towing the line. I Yeah, I get you. And and I guess the question it also raises is, are you going to create the biggest impact yes. in government or outside it's of it? Very um, good that you brought that up. I, I was thinking <laughs> in my head the whole time, you said change maker. So, um, and, you know, simple society is the biggest change maker. It makes me think about power and the dynamics of change. And, you know, we've got... Uh, we talked earlier about the not-for-profit sector, government, business, media. Um, mm. Don't miss a couple of other arms yeah, there. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, has has the has the power shifted a lot for you in recent years from government to those other sectors? I think it really has, and um, I think I think the energy sector is quite um, symptomatic of this. We had so much debate last year around the the neg. The National Energy Guarantee yep. Scheme, um, 
and you know it wasn't wasn't going through government in the way that we expected it would and and that raised a lot of questions around well, how much are we actually reliant on government mm. for change in the energy sector or is this something that's actually motivated by private sector groups and civil society and funnily enough the same week that those debates were happening I had Dr Gemma Green on um, on my show who is the CEO of Powerledger which is um, the first energy blockchain company in the cool. world and yeah, basically, she's just so cool. Most of it went over my head, um, admittedly. <laughs> <laughs> sort of was frantically Googling as she was talking and kind of nodding like I knew. But she um, it was just quite amazing um, how, you know, she's using blockchain to um, – to support solar energy and she's already converted an entire apartment block in Perth to solar energy and working with remote communities in Thailand and India doing the same. And I said to Gemma, how much is, is the government's inaction or yeah, lack of action essentially affecting your work? And she said, well, it's not. Um, they control the regulatory environment and, and of course, you know, it helps um, build confidence amongst the private sector when the government is setting an agenda, which yep. we can all follow. Yep. But if they're not setting an agenda, are we really going to wait? Um, well, I think <laughs> that's been unanimously answered by entrepreneurship, in, you know, which, which I think is not an arm really, but it, it's a group that really to see the startup scene flourish like it has here and some really um, industrious yeah. companies come to market and scale yeah. is very um, exciting, yeah. like in the absence of leadership. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And that's that's the essence of entrepreneurship, isn't it? It's yeah. like don't wait, just kind of just go. Yeah. Um and so yeah, I think for that reason that makes me less um interested in a career in politics in the same way that uh, you know the modern day relevance of the United Nations and the World Bank and all those sort of major donors comes into question when we look at the the actions of of businesses and civil society which is far more dynamic and I hate the word agile but it's agile mm. um, when we compare it to governments and major donors so I guess for me that raises the question of how does the work we do um, fit into the broader landscape, yeah. like what's your piece of the impact puzzle? Yep. Can Can you answer that from a sort of purposeful perspective? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I've always thought that um, you you can't rely on government to do or not do, but you can rely on business to do um, or not do because there's a profit motive there. So my thinking was always that if you can, and this is my purposeful answer, if you can get business to understand the case for purpose and why it's important to be purpose-driven and impact-focused, community-focused, have a stakeholder-driven model, then they will mobilize and pour um, more resources and support community organizations more and not-for-profits and, and that'll be a good thing and you know the, the the way to coin that maybe in the old language was corporate social responsibility but what we think about now is social impact so mm. it's a positive um, reframing where it's about a company having a, a purposeful partnership with a not-for-profit and then they're both thriving in the process mm. so that's kind of where i think the purposeful work fits in it's that kind of piece between aligning incentives between um not-for-profit and um company a little bit yeah. the company wants to be better and um there are ways that partnerships with not-for-profits and working collaboratively can make the performance better and yeah. in turn drive profit yeah so for me that's the that, that's actually a secret part of the jigsaw puzzle yeah. If you can get companies to understand that this purpose stuff, it's not just um, like a nice fancy luxury item extra, but it's actually driving better performance and shareholders want to see that, then you can line the ducks up and see change. 
Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a really good answer. And, and I think what that raises for me, which I'm interested in your take on, is are these lines between the sectors becoming increasingly redundant? It's a great question. Let, let me just add on two more parts to my previous answer. So that's, that's the purposeful part. Mm. And because I think we both also play a role in, um, in uh, context setting with the podcast as well. So, yeah. you know, and as per, like as, as sharers of information. So both our podcasts, I think, play an important role in showing people out there that there are other options. Mm. And it's not just all about maybe, um, you know, doing something that doesn't have meaning or purpose, or even if it is that you you can actually learn so much from people who are really giving a lot to create that impact. Mm. So I think I think that's one thing that sharing element is huge. Yeah, and I think not for profit. I'm not sure if you can relate, but I I, I certainly felt in my time and currently still a not for profit. There's a lot of um, work to be done on strategy mm. and sort of and measuring the things that they're doing. Not for profits do incredible work, but um, often don't take the time to measure it or tell that story well. Mm. So um, if we can help not-for-profits to better tell their story around impact and to um, better advocate, they'll do better and they'll be funded more. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's kind of how I see it all um, fitting together, how the impact puzzle yeah. works. Does that, does that uh, mesh with your sort of take on it? It does, big time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so much of, of my work is making the case for impact measurement. Yeah. Um, and... I think historically M&E has been sort of almost an inconvenience at times or just, you know, monitoring and evaluation, sometimes an afterthought. Um, I don't think we've fully grasped why we want to understand our impact. And I think since getting into this work, I see the numerous reasons why we do that. It's not just for the sake of future decision-making for your programs. It's, you know, it's a critical way to communicate with your investors and, and your stakeholders. And it's, it's also, it's also just ethical. Yeah. It's, it's ethical. (laughs) It's rational. It's about science. So Mm. it's about, um, having the scientific inquiry or the the desire to know whether something works and Mm. being uh, conscious about making that choice to know. Mm. Uh, If we didn't make that choice to know when we're being just uh, choosing to be willfully blind about things. And when I was in um, government, I saw a lot of programs be funded and ongoing funding that just were never tested or measured. Um, And you hear, you know, now – podcasts and all kinds of things about, you know, trials in the US, like scared straight about things that, you know, were, everyone thought was working, but, you know, we're not. And yeah. We just need to know whether things are working and we, we, we need to hold ourselves to high standards in that space. And also if government is funding not-for-profits and the not-for-profits also can't report or aren't taking the time to report on whether what they're doing is working because they don't know, then um, we're going to have a very inefficient system. Yeah. Part of that is I think also just um, – being very very clear that a lot of M and E is not funded as part mm. of projects or is funded at a very low rate. Mm. So you know when, when we ask the question, why is it not for profits doing more to um, measure impact? It's because it's not compensated as part of a lot of grants or contracts. Yeah. So and they don't have the funds lying around to get it measured or the internal capability. So there's there really is still a piece of the puzzle there that's not really addressed. Yeah. 
Yeah, I completely agree. And then I guess it comes down to the decision makers at the outset of a program to actually factor that into their budgets and to see if the case for it, it early. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that's the thing. Like, do you know, what's the incentive? I mean, how much do they really want to know if something's working? So yeah, and and then there's so many different forms of monitoring and evaluation. You know, if you're just doing something like most significant change, where you're just looking for the positives. Um, it's yeah, it's sort of how deep do you want to get? Yep. Like, how do you really want to know if if this if this program is working or not? Um, you asked before about blurred lines between yeah. sectors, and um, I think what you're asking about is sort of you know between community sector, business, and yeah. I mean, so for me, it's a, a fascinating space. I think I I always thought that these guys or these organisations or forms have so much more in common than they have different, but they just don't seem to work together that well a lot of the time. Mm. So I think if you had to imagine a spectrum, you know, left to right, not-for-profit on the far left and um, business on the far right, it's basically a, a purpose-profit scale. It's a sliding purpose-profit scale. Mm. So it, yeah, your motivation is almost totally purpose at the left side, the not-for-profit end, and at the right side, um, you know, ASX 200 public business, it's all shareholder and profit. And so I think we're seeing that um, that scale is condensing um, and certainly, you know, even your biggest companies now talk about purpose a lot. So it's becoming more of a priority and doing a bit more spending in that space. And not-for-profits um, or community sector are talking a lot more about um, surplus and efficiencies and, um, you know, investing, innovation, things that require more spend and more spend of overheads. Yeah. So I think there's there's a very interesting convergence going on. Yeah, 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 definitely. We're seeing that application of business thinking in the not-for-profit sector quite a lot. I heard an interesting um, statement. Uh, I've actually heard it from numerous people now. I'm not sure who it came from originally, but um, it was that it is totally up to the private sector to achieve the sustainable development goals Mm. and that, you know, the role of the not-for-profit sector in achieving those goals is actually very limited. And I really, like, I sit on the fence with this one. I, I, I don't know. Um, do you have a take on it? I should have a take on it. John, John Thwaites <laughs> was on the podcast uh, uh-huh. a bit earlier in the, in the year. We had a really good conversation about it. I think it's certainly SDG, uh, I think it's 16 or 17, so civil sector partnerships are, mm-hmm. are key for the SDGs. They're going to be important. But you do get the feeling that the SDGs have been very much crafted up for business to take a lead role along with government. But in terms of the civil society and the um, NGOs and not-for-profits, it's a bit unclear a lot of the time. I mean, they're going to do what they've always done and do things to a really high standard, but how they fit into the goals and what their contribution is is sort of um, seems to be less front and centre. Yeah, yeah, yep. That civil society partnerships is so important. And I guess... I guess where that idea is coming from is is you know these goals are so huge like the the things that we didn't we totally didn't achieve the millennium development goals um and so I guess it's that you know the sustainable development goals are such a huge task and the not-for-profit sector simply does not have the resources that are required yes that's, a, that's an that. excellent answer I mean I think it is about resourcing but I, I do share your view that like the MDG is just a disaster but I think, I mean, I don't, I'd be interested to hear your view, but I feel like the SDGs have been much better received and mm-hmm. much easier to peg to. We get a lot of um, clients and uh, people coming to me in a purposeful um, context looking to align to the SDGs. Mm. And um, you can help them do that. There are you know frameworks available and tools. And you know, I know that um, 
B-Labs is working on a tool at the moment in conjunction with the UN Global Compact. So there's actually some exciting stuff happening. Yeah. Okay. That's Yeah, that's really good to hear. I'm, I'm seeing a lot of businesses aligning themselves to the SDGs as well. And I guess, you know, they're not perfect, but in the absence of anything else, there's something yeah, to unite let, us all. I agree. Let me ask you this. Is it Would you prefer to see a business um, align with the SDGs and then not really do anything in support of those SDGs or to not say anything about the SDGs and, and do nothing? The latter, definitely. I mean, yeah aligning with the SDGs purely because it looks good on your annual report um, is, is probably worse than just not aligning with them at all. Um, but, you know, I'd like to think that businesses that are choosing to align with the SDGs are taking the steps that are, are required to actually substantiate that decision. Um, but it takes a long time to, to socialise these sorts of things. And I've, I've heard it said quite a few times that Australia is a notoriously slow adopter of things. Yep. Um, particularly these global goals, we we take a while to come to the party. Um, and what, what year did the SDGs start? Twenty sixteen, yeah, I, I think. So. You know, we're only in year three of a of a fifteen year um, program. Um, maybe maybe we haven't fully understand or, or grappled with the value of them yet. Um, and I think that's not to say there aren't other things going on that that arguably have a greater impact mm. um but i think it's nice to be unified on something yep. you know like to have some some standardized goals that that we're all working towards um and i think that's where we come back to the private sector and the un global compact exists to to mobilize the private sector on the sustainable development goals because at the end of the day we if we don't get the big multinational corporations on board yep the impact that we're going to have is negligible. So true. And I mean, what I would like to see happen, and I know that there's been, there was a list of about was either 30 or 100 companies that came out and their CEOs came out and said they support the, the um, SDGs and will work towards them. So that was exciting. And that's in an Australian context. I'm not sure how much progress has been made towards the most important SDGs. I know we did just report back to the UN on those earlier in, I think it was late last year perhaps. Mm-hmm. But what I would hope would be a next step is that um, clusters and groups emerge that focus on particular SDGs and you know there's a way that they can connect with each other. Mm-hmm. So a company X can say, oh, look, um, company Y is also focused on um, education. Um, can we do something together around this or working groups you know, that kind of clustered formation around an issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes so much sense. These communities of practice yes, that are, that are emerging. Um, yeah, ACFID, Australian Council for International Development. Um, I, I hadn't encountered communities of practice until I became a part of one of the ACFID communities of practice. And I think, I think they have varying levels of success, but I think there is something powerful about bringing together um, very, um, you know, subject matter experts from very different backgrounds and and trying to agree um, on things. So, yeah, global communities of practice around the sustainable development goals all all sounds very good. But when we talk about this, I keep coming back to something that you and I have spoken about before, which is are we actually like where's the line between action and rhetoric? Mm. And is there this risk of when we talk too much about things Mm. like SDGs and we spend so much time maybe – 
out protesting or, you know, all those sorts of things. Yeah. At what point are we actually sitting down at a desk and doing we did, we did explore that <laughs> that wiki a bit last night in the live podcast too, sort of the, the value of um, of protest versus other action perhaps. Yeah. That's an interesting are you a protester? I'm not. Uh, I don't <laughs> get out there and protest because I, I just think I know what my time is well used. And I think one of the best things you can do for yourself in your life, whether it's in business or other realms, is understand what you're bad at and um, either make a conscious choice to really get better at it fast or delegate it out. Um, and that's why I don't do my own social media or communications anymore. <laughs> and I think, you know, um, similarly, knowing where you're going to be able to have an impact or not is really important too. So it's much better for me to spend time doing things like trying to work with more organizations as purposeful to strengthen capacity and um, focus on impact than it is to go to a protest, I think. Mm. Um, and as to what you said before about, you know, um, words and action, it's funny because in entrepreneurship, um, you often have to talk a lot before you do anything because you have to convince people that you're doing something worth investing in or, you know, paying you to do. Yeah. But then as it, time goes on, if it's like imagine you flip an hourglass and then you're doing more and talking less. So the, the, yeah. the kind of dilution effect there or the, the um, you come back to equilibrium with that. But I do look in our space and I'm so sure you've seen this purpose washing and impact washing. Um, notorious problems where you've got people who don't really have any great intent to follow through on um, their their desire to uh, their statements around change and purpose and impact and you know there's a a lot of people you'll see on LinkedIn making very verbose statements about the great impact their company's having but um, there's not a lot of work happening on the ground and that's really I think um, terrible for the sector uh, because you know. Social media um, makes gives people a certain idea about what's happening, and that's if that's a lot of the time that's just not factually accurate. What you see is not happening, and uh, rather than encourage others to do good, um, they're just kind of maybe like disincentivizing um, authentic action. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I completely agree with you, uh, and I think I think podcasting is a really interesting element of that. So, like, I, I'm interested in when you started this podcast, was it because you felt it was a direct way to um, expand your impact? It's an excellent question. Um, no, like I, I didn't um, – when I started this, it was never about impact. I think it was about, um, like you, I started to develop networks very quickly just by reaching out to people. Uh, and I would have conversations that would keep me smiling for a day or two yep. after that happened. <laughs> And I just thought this is stuff worth sharing with others and others could use this to benefit their themselves, better themselves and their, their impact in the world. And I didn't, I'm keen to get your reflection, but I just felt that if you're speaking to somebody who's very time poor, they, they are not going to have time to have coffees with other people who are just not as aligned or whatever. But if they have a coffee with you and you, you've got that opportunity, wouldn't it be great to just share that with a lot of people and sort of, pull out some key messages. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it becomes such a critical resource. And I think I never thought of it in that way. I never thought of this as a resource that other people would use. Um, and certainly in our first few episodes of, of this podcast, I, you know, the views would be maybe 60, 70, mm -hmm. something like that. Um, and I sort of assumed they were all like my family members. Um <laughs> 
Um, And then as time has gone on, I've seen how other organizations have used these episodes as resources. Yeah. And I think that's exactly reflective of my own experience. I sometimes get um, emails or a LinkedIn message saying, hey, mate, um, great job on that podcast. I listened to that to prepare me for this meeting. Yeah, wow. I really liked your conversation with so-and-so. And and because the truth is, I think that there's not a lot of, like the people who we talk to are not out there all the time doing these types of things and they're not often, you know, sharing their brilliant ideas on things. So when you get a chance to sit with someone and really explore them in an in a authentic way, um, there's just so much in there. I mean, they're just gems everywhere to be found. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, want, you want to share that, you know? Oh, you do. Yeah. And, and I think – uh, the preparation topic is a really interesting part of that because, yeah. you know, as you very rightly said, people have so many gems and so much knowledge to share and, and often we can only scratch the surface of that mm. in a half-hour conversation. But how do you maximise your time with someone? And is that by uh, meticulously preparing every mm. question or is it by trying to be as present and authentic as possible? <laughs> you already know the answer to the question. It's very tricky. I know, that's very loaded. <laughs> we talked earlier about, um, you know, sort of the, the, the journalist approach and the, the rigorous analysis and prep and, and then you go in there and it's like, you know, you're, you're, um, you think you're a seasoned ABC journalist or something. But, but I mean, so I, when I started out, um, I, I wrote down, you know, 15 questions and it's a run sheet and then you send it off to the person to look at. But then um, it just wasn't becoming fun. I'd have to worry a lot about the exchanges with the person. Did they have time to tick off on questions and editing their questions and I mean as you know like we don't get paid to do this so I mean it just seems like a horrible administrative burden to impose on yourself outside of work hours so I thought um why don't I try this is about 30 episodes in I thought why don't I try just not doing that and see what happens so there was I can't remember which podcast it was was the changeover one but for one podcast I just did I decided my method would be 10 to 15 minutes of environmental scanning of the internet and whatever and whatever it stays in my head stays and then we'll just have a conversation and then I think that was a real breakthrough because um things started to become organic and loose and kind of fun and I started to enjoy things again yeah because I had I had pummeled myself into pretending to be a journalist but I'm not a journalist I'm just Mike (laughs) Yeah, um, and you know, I'm not somebody who's going to, um, for a meeting with another person, spend a huge amount of time preparing. I'd rather just get a sense of that person, in, mm-hmm. like from the moment, and be fully present in that moment. And then, if I want to research them to meet up again, then I can do that. Yeah. Yep. I like that logic a lot. And I really like what you just said, whatever stays in my head stays. Well, it's a salience thing. So, you Mm. know, if if stuff is going to stay in your memory, it's probably the important stuff that should come up. Um, And I think, you know, you're you're really busy. I mean, you told me about your schedule (laughs) weeknights arranging podcasts after 12-hour days and whatnot. I mean, you know, you're under the pump. So for you to do all the preparation that you've been doing, it seems like um, it's awesome. Like I can tell your questions must be much better than mine and you're probably like much more um, topic relevant. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's true though. I I, I think the reason I did preparation was not – for the interview itself, it was because I haven't been confident enough in my own views. I haven't felt comfortable sitting across, um, well, sitting across the computer screen in my case, because yep. we record via Skype yep. um, and, and asking questions. And I think it's been, you know, the past 12 months of my career have been by far the most 
um, incredible and transformational that I've had. And um, I've sort of gotten to a point now where I'm actually pretty confident that I have intelligent things to say. <laughs> I can reassure you of that right now. You've said some amazing things in the past two days. Oh, that's kind. But I think now that I've gotten to that point, I've gone, okay, well, maybe I don't need to prepare because maybe I can just trust my intuition on this and know that I've got something to ask someone. I think also knowing your offering. So what what is your podcast offering? Mm -hmm. If you're offering to the world um, a a rehearsed um, journalistic interview, then you should prepare. But I'm not offering that. I mean, my offering is a conversation Mm -hmm. and conversations are not planned. Um, Mm -hmm. You can't, you can try. I mean, if you go to a job interview and you're going to be very strategic about it, you can try and plan it. But generally speaking, uh, if you're catching up with someone, um, you don't call them and be like, hey, um, just what do you want to talk about for our (laughs) Before you have coffee. (laughs) Actually, I did have to do that um, today because I met up with my mentor. So I I recently got a mentor after hearing about how good mentors are from hundreds of guests. You know, um, (laughs) this year got myself a terrific mentor. So he... um, He's a executive assistant last week on Friday. Um, emailed me saying, Hey, Mike, can you just send through some bullet points for discussion? And I thought that was, um, that's a cool context for preparation. Mm. You know, that's when preparation is warranted if it's a mentor mentee thing. Um, but I think in the, in the case that you're meeting someone usually for the first time, um, you know, spend, 10 or 15 minutes, and you don't have the luxury of this, do you? Because yours is via Skype. So mm. for all of my podcasts, I spend 15 to 20 minutes with a person um, just over coffee or having a tea or a scotch. Yep. Um, and that's the time when we can kind of plan questions or themes or it's more we, we, we try and figure out what are some of our themes going to be or that we want to cover. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Can I ask you about having a mentor though? Because yeah. I hear about this a lot too. Yeah. How, so, okay, so how do you get one? Like how did you <laughs> – what steps did you take? <laughs> um, so I ask a lot of people about that question actually on the on my podcast. Yeah. Because I, I mean often my podcast, um, the questions are to help me as well. Like mm-hmm. I'm asking also for myself. But um, one of them, yeah, so it was about that. And I think the answer I got was – uh, there were sort of two things. So you can kind of just like, if you're speaking to someone who has no time and they're a CEO and they're very busy and they're important, um, you can kind of just see whether they'll have a regular coffee with you and not call it a mentor situation. That's that's the like on the down low approach is mm-hmm. you don't talk about it. You pretend it's just a coffee. It's okay. very sly. Yep. I feel like it's like very <laughs> clear. The other approach is you just um, you have a coffee with them and then you raise it in conversation about, um, hey, I'm finding this really useful, the way you're taking an interest in me and my career and my development. Um, I see you as a really you know valuable part of my growth. I would love if we could catch up semi-regularly to um, work on X and Y issues. Mm. So I think that's a conversation you can have is better done in person yep. or you can put that in an email and then they'll just send you four calendar dates. Yeah, yeah. And then, then there's the question. So the complicated part is also, do you want to pay for it or do you want it to be just kind of because, you know, they like you? Um, so there's all kinds of blurry lines between coaches and mentors as well, which I don't really quite get yet. Yes, yeah, that, that is confusing. And, and coaching is still such a buzzword, isn't it? Like it is. everyone has a coach, a career coach or a life coach, which does seem to differ to a mentor. And I think I think uh, that sort of ad hoc informal approach I have in spades. Yeah. Like I, 
and I'm sure you find with some of the guests you have on the show, you stay in touch and you catch up with them and they all become like quasi mentors. But I've never explicitly said to someone, will you be a mentor for me? Do you want to? Like, could you identify um, like one or two that stood out? Yeah, I, I could. I definitely could. And I think this again comes back to knowing what you're offering. Yeah. Like, I think it's very difficult to ask someone, will you support and advise me on a semi-regular basis without first knowing that there's something in it for them? Um, and well, that I takes a while. I think you're right in a way, but I think you should never underestimate people's desire to give back in the same mm. way that they had um, mentors give to them. So one of my mentors, I have two, one of my mentors is for a specific uh, area. She was willing to take me on as a mentee um, because someone had done that for her. So I actually said to her, would you like to be paid for this? And she said, look, no, that's fine. Um, someone's paid it forward for me, so I'm happy to support you. Wow. So pe- you want to find people, I think, who want to take uh, any active interest or have a stake in your success. Yeah. Um, and that for them is very rewarding. Like that is, I mean, I look, I, I can see how it would be really rewarding for somebody to want to help somebody and they do devote that time. And then like you're like an investment for them of social capital. Yeah. You know, they become like they want to see you grow and succeed. And so for them that is rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so, true. so you wouldn't be too worried about the payoff thing. You just have to find someone who your challenge is like just making sure that person um, is invested in you. Yeah, exactly. And it's so true with, with the giving back. Like I look at the past six years for me and I've had – a handful of people that have really gone out of their way to help me where I wouldn't be in the position I'm in now if it weren't for those people. And yep. so the opportunity to do that for younger professionals is is really, really appealing. I wanted to ask you actually about um, relationships with guests and like after that being on your show, I find sometimes like, you know, you record every week, is it? Every week, yeah. Every yeah. Week. So yep. I record every week but have had a lot of guests now and I just um, – I don't always know whether I'm going to stay friends with the people who come on the show. Like sometimes I, I want to, but I'm not sure if they want to. And it becomes, I get awkward in those situations. Oh, making friends as an adult is so hard. It is hard. It's, <laughs> people never talk about it, but it's like, um, you know, I really, like for me it's also, you know, I get to choose to spend time with people who are amazing. So, of course, I sought them out in the first place. Of course, I want to continue to hang out with them, a lot of them. But mm. obviously I would be, if I, if I try to just maintain my relationships with every guest, that's all I would do. Like I'd have no other time. Yeah. How do you follow up with guests and do you kind of, do you stay in touch and just casual or friendly? Yeah. Um, look, I'd say it's probably a 50, 50 split. So there are guests where the work that they're doing, whilst it's so interesting and relevant to my show, I probably don't have a lot to offer them at this point in time. Um, there are other guests where, I'm doing work that's very aligned with them. And so I like to continue to share resources with them. Um, so, you know, we, um, at EY had a, um, uh, investor report come out towards the end of last year, which was just super interesting and really relevant to any organization looking for investment. And, um, I shared that with a bunch of guests. So that we sort of, I share a lot of resources and they do the same with me. Um, and then a more limited handful are the ones that you just really gel with and, you know, you end up following each other on Instagram and <laughs> hanging out. That's how the kids do it now. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about those uh, sliding into the DMs. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Look, I do that with a lot of my guests. Um, <laughs> How do you find guests now? So you were saying that a lot of your original crop were people you knew. Um, mm. Do you just 
like, so my approach is very like caveman. If I'm on LinkedIn or another, that's my main thing that I like, or another, not just news or whatever, and I see someone who I really like the look of and think that would be very interesting to talk to, yeah. I just try and find out what their email is or LinkedIn and just write to them. Yeah. Um, do you do that? I have started that? doing that now. Yeah. So I've been planning season three recently um, and I have started doing that. Um, so I don't know if you're one of those people that chooses a word of the year, but I am. And, <laughs> and my 2018 word of the year was surrender. And it has extended. It's become my 2019 word of the year as well. You can, can you do that? I'm not sure. You can. I don't think you can, but I haven't. <laughs> I haven't thought of a new one, um, probably because I'm still pretty keen on the old one. Yeah. Um, and it sort of has applied a lot to my approach to getting guests. And there have been times where I have tried so hard to get a particular guest on the show. Like mm. I just got really fixated on one person. I thought you're what I need on this show, and I've ex- exhausted every avenue, you know. And you get no response, or they're unavailable, and things like that. And I come back to maybe they're not supposed to be there. Like maybe there's another guest that is, and maybe just surrender that is and it'll excellent. work out. I like that word. Um, mm. I don't have a word of the year, but I have a concept <laughs> that I've been uh-huh. workshopping. I, I like the word equanimity, which means kind of Gosh. You know, neither, good, neither good nor bad. Okay. Have you heard it before? No. So it comes from Buddhism. Um, it's, it's an English word, equanimity. And um, it just means not feeling like something, a lack of attachment to outcomes in that sense. So um, a person being available or not available is neither good nor bad. It just is. Mm. So that's, that's kind of my approach with a lot of things now. Yeah. Um, it's similar to surrender. Yeah, it's very similar. It's it's like it, it's that letting go of like things are really never as important as we think. Um, and one other maxim that I use in my own life um, sometimes when I'm a bit under the pressure is I ask myself, will I remember this in five years? Mm. And um, I won't. So no. why am no. I worried about it now? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, that's very interesting to me, the word of the year. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you'll cool. have to start setting one. <laughs> I've been doing it probably the past 10 years. And you're, you're also an, um, an avid reader. And tell, tell me about your ambitious goal for 2019. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, my very ambitious goal. So I'm trying to read 50 books this year. Um, I feel like book goals were like a big trend of 2018. I don't know if you noticed that. But I, yeah, I feel like everyone I know set a book goal. Um and I probably read about six books all up in 2018. And partly that was because so many of us, myself included, just identify as busy. Yes. Like I am so guilty of wearing busy as a status symbol. Yes. Um, partly because I am, but also because I, we align busyness with success. Yeah. Um, and so for that reason, I'd always gone, well, I actually don't have time to read, like, because I'm very busy and important. <laughs> Sort of for this year, I went, well, that's actually not true. Um, actually, A, do have time to read, and B, we all have time to read. It's a matter of priorities. Yep. Um, so, I, yeah, I commute. I have public transport for about an hour a day, so I've stopped scrolling. Um, I turn my phone off for my commute now, mm-hmm. and I read. Oh, wow. Um, Strict practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has to be off or it's too tempting. Yeah. And it's been great. I've, I've read a book, uh, a mix of, of fiction and nonfiction. Michelle Obama's biography was the first one. Um, but, you know, just I feel so much more intelligent when I'm actually making the time to read and, and more grounded and, and, you know, it's just generally it feels better than scrolling on your phone. I have an idea for you. <laughs> Um, okay. <laughs> I very much resonate with the things you were saying. You should interview more authors whose books you've read or want to read. Ooh, that's a 
a great idea. Because then you're like locking yourself into reading their stuff. Oh, I and love it that. It, it makes it better on all fronts. Like um, this year I've read, I'm reading one book and I've finished another book of a guest who've been on the podcast. And having met, hung out with them for an hour and then you know, reading their book, it just makes it so much better. Has this aired yet? Yeah, both this, of them have aired. Okay, what were the yeah. books? Uh, so Lisa Portland mm-hmm. uh, wrote an excellent book. Uh, oh, look, it's right there. Uh, <laughs> Happy as, isn't that a perfect uh, uh-huh. Oh, sequence? lovely, so yep. That was terrific and I really I read that in literally a few hours because it's such a good page turner. Uh-huh. Um, her views are very interesting actually around, you know, social media, personal image, the, the busyness trap that you mm. described. Um the one I'm reading now, which you love, is uh, by Andrew Lee, uh-huh. a federal MP, and um, he's written Random Misters. Okay. And it's the study, it's, it's, it's the um, application and study of randomized control trials in the world. Yeah, cool. I think I've heard about that yeah. one. He, he's just, um, I did the podcast actually with his offices, his visiting Melbourne offices, but he is so well spoken mm-hmm. uh, and so smart that I just like, I knew he'd, I've read his books previously, that I knew this would be a cracker. Mm. But what he's got better at is just uh, setting the scene with clever anecdotes. Yep. Like he, it's you know, his book starts out um, as like, you know, in the 1700s, a ship is sailing somewhere and like, you know, the story of, you know, um, trying to avoid scurvy or yep. butchering it. But <laughs> it's just how he, like his, his storytelling has gone to another level. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Oh, that's great. That's a that's a really good idea too. I'm yeah. definitely going to do that. Um, that's, that's one of the things I'm going to do. So we, we can share. Yeah. Oh, yeah. let's do it. Yeah. Uh, I, I think in your last episode uh, with Matt, mm. you discussed, is it factfulness or truth? That is yeah. It? Hans Rosling's factfulness is a good one. Yeah. Uh, the other one that I... So, so the reason I'm reading these books is that I'm a bit fascinated at the moment about how useful it is to frame the world as going a lot better than mm-hmm. the doomsayers think mm. or whether it's better to just criticise how badly the world's going. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think there's there's different schools of people doing both. There's You've got um, Steve Pinker who's, you know, saying that the world is in the best state it's ever been despite all our pessimism and he's written a book, Enlightenment Now, which is, I think, uh, in there somewhere, and uh, he's also written the case for optimism, which mm-hmm. is uh, similar about his thoughts. But then, you know, we, we see that the numbers and the the, the death, the starvation, um, a lack of progress in so many areas, and you just think things still suck. Should we really be celebrating? You yeah, know? yeah. You feel almost guilty for celebrating. That's yeah. the that's the emotional response I usually have. It reminds me of Utopia for Realists, yes. which I read recently. Great book. Which is, yeah, very good. Um, yeah, it's a hard one because I, I don't know if you are the same, but I I do generally feel very optimistic. Yeah. Um, I try and stay optimistic as well. So it's kind of like I'm filter bubbling myself by continuing on this path, mm. but I don't really want to, like I'm, I'm not in a position to read Naomi Klein right now. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> I haven't been in that position in a long time. <laughs> yeah. But, but these people, yeah. so these, these pessimists are uh, these people who have a view on the world and where it's at a pretty devastating spot. Um, have some great points to make, but I just—it's in the—I need positivity in my life at the moment when I'm reading. Um, so I think the existential question this begs for me is: what motivates people? Like, is yeah. guilt a motivating emotion? Mm. Is um, is discomfort a motivating emotion, or are people more motivated by feeling optimistic? Like, we're already doing good things; let's keep doing them. 
and I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but I think where I sit is that discomfort is always a precursor for change. And so it's discomfort. And so we do need to be made to feel uncomfortable sometimes. Um, We need confronting facts and figures. Um, If we're trying to keep everyone comfortable and everything overly sanitized all the time, that's not going to work. But I also feel that guilt is not motivating. No, it's not. And I think that's where... I take your share your position on the lack of utility of some of the hardcore protesting action and the you know Antifa like sort of stuff out there. I, I think the worst thing that you can do is to be too extreme because um, you lose everyone. Mm. So everything's about meeting somewhere in the middle. Um, the solutions are not going to be carved out by one side, um, you know, mutually exclusive of the other. So it's about getting to the centre a bit more, I think, and um, yeah, really being able to workshop solutions together and and look human behavior and motivation there's definitely room for um guilt and shame as mm, a motivator mm. and sometimes we have to but there's also there's a carrot and stick you know the other side is we have to reward good behavior mm-hmm. but i think not as much as we are yeah we tend to make a massive song and dance about um a company making a really small change that <laughs> uh, looks good usually and yeah doesn't do a lot of the ground and um have you seen our new promotional video highlighting yeah. <laughs> how we're changing Australia for the better. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of overclaiming. Yeah. What, yeah. What you, so you, oh, you I agree with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of overclaiming. But yeah. Again, it's about finding that balance. And and I think um I think as I've told you before, the the question I ask all of my guests, and I usually ask it about themselves, mm. is what does success look like for you in 10 years? But what this conversation makes me think is what does success look like? for us as a society in 10 yeah. years. It's much, it's much easier to say it for yourself and much harder to say what does success look like for our sector yeah. or, or, you know, Australia. But um, well, Maybe that's a good, like, closing question. Like, okay. um, can I ask it to you first because it's your question? What, do, what does oh, success God. look like in 10 years for you and for society? And I'll also answer. Okay. It's funny. Whenever I ask my guests this, I always breathe a sigh of relief that no one's asking me. <laughs> <laughs> and you have. Um, <laughs> so, look, I'll start with, um, with society because I actually find that a little bit easier than for myself. Um, I think that we, you know, for me it's about breaking down these increasingly redundant barriers between sectors. Um, it's about not having standalone CSR arms in businesses. It's, you know, it's about going beyond compliance mm-hmm. and actually seeing the value in being a profit for purpose. Yep. Um, I think we're getting there and I think that's really encouraging, but I worry that we still have this sort of altruistic vibe to it. And yeah. we think that we're doing it because it's right and good, but we also need to be able to make that economic argument that is actually often in the long term. Um, I, I love methodologies like long-term value, where we actually say in the long term, what's in the interest of the planet, what's in the interest of people are also what's in the interest of profits. Yes. Um, and so that convergence of ideals and also a convergence of sectors, um, so just being more collaborative rather than um, separated by these really binary divides mm-hmm. is where I see society going. And then I guess aligned with that is success for me is playing a role mm-hmm. in helping to to create that shift um, and doing that by being very authentic, um, never losing my message 
um, no matter which company I work for sort of maintaining my own personal why, mm. which, which is very much about that, that breaking down of walls and, and being truly collaborative. Um, so yeah, 10 years from now, if I can look back and say I've played a, a, a significant role in doing mm. that, that would be very satisfying. It's your turn. Oh, no. <laughs> the, the, the most feared question of all. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think the more I think about the way things are at the moment in the world, um, and in our context, it's there's a lack of trust. Um, I think there's a lack of um, incentives that are aligned to action. So when you don't have trust, it's very hard to collaborate uh, between organisations. I think organisations are not trusting each other enough to do the right thing, and maybe rightly so in many cases. But also, we don't have the incentives properly aligned. So in order to get from a position where a company cares more about the community and cares very much about its stakeholders rather than um, just the, the bottom line, there's got to be more incentives to do that. And and that doesn't mean creating incentives. It means realising the actual economic mechanics of it all. So investing in your stakeholders, you'll do better mm-hmm. anyway. So mm-hmm. it's very... Um, it's, it's very much about being better at presenting that case so that businesses take it up and believe in it and then action that. Yeah. So that's one thing. Um, and I think, you know, the, the good thing about getting that right is it'll imbue a lot more trust in customers and community and suppliers and, um, you know, all the other members, stakeholders in the community. So that should engender positive social change, which is very important. Um, where will I be in 10 years' time? I think helping to support that mission as well of, you know, embedding more trust and, you know, aligning incentives a bit better um, between the, the, all the important stakeholders in our economy and society. Um, I'd just like to be able to say that I did something that helped the system get to where it needs to go, but also hopefully in a few of the organisations I'll be in by that time that they've really been able to thrive and um, help take up that mission too. That's such a good answer. Oh, you nailed it. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really funny and interesting that you keep asking a question that you're so concerned about. I know. Are you going to change your question? No. That's great. Absolutely it's really not. Good it's good you know to put people good? on the spot. It's, it's good because it makes people uncomfortable. Yeah. That's how you know. That's how you cannot script for that, you know? Exactly. It makes people be their authentic selves. And it's always, you know, it's the hardest question, but I find it's always the one that I end up quoting Absolutely. after the episode because it's where people say what's what's really close to their heart and what they really gold, mean. The pieces of gold everywhere. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> so where can people uh, tell everyone about the podcast, its website, uh, yeah. where they can find it and also how to contact you? Yeah. So it's Goodwill Hunters. Um, we are on um, all the social media sites um, and the podcast is on iTunes and SoundCloud. One of my goals for this year is to have a website. So watch this space. Um, but yeah, I would love for, for anyone who's interested to reach out on LinkedIn. And yeah, I just love learning about what other people are doing. So uh, please feel free to contact me and same for you. Awesome. Well, my so my details are um, you know humans of purpose. You can search for us anywhere, and you can go to humansofpurpose.com.au. And I think at the moment we're on Instagram and Facebook and occasional Twitter. Uh, so all, all the channels. And likewise, if you can find the right Mike Davis, you're welcome to write to me. Too. <laughs> There's a challenge. It's a challenge. It's a special bonus for anyone. They get a response if they can find me. <laughs> Cool. Thank you so much. This has been awesome. Thanks for coming. It was great. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player. 
why not share the podcast with a friend? You could also leave us a five-star review in your podcast player. You may also want to join us for one of our regular live podcasts or to become a show sponsor. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com.au and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook.